We have a two little word sentence that can be a very impactful sentence in the English language. Uh, the sentence is, so what? And you can use that phrase in a whole variety of ways to get yourself in all sorts of trouble or to clarify a situation. Uh, if mom says, I told you, young man, go upstairs and go clean your room. And the response is, well, so what? That's not going to go very well, right? That is going to destroy your day, your mom's day, everyone's day. This is going to be chaos in the house to uh, utilize so what in this manner. Uh, sometimes it can help us to make good decisions, though. If there's a guy on TV that wants you to buy the Blenderizer 5000 and he says it has 18 billion Blenderizer units, you can go, so what? Right? That's, what does that mean? You're trying to sell me this thing and you're using these words that I don't understand what they are. What does that mean? Why is it important? And then on the more serious side, so what can be the question we ask that leads us into a next step. So when Peter on the day of Pentecost says, this Jesus whom you killed is now who we know to be our Lord and Savior, the people say, well, so what? So what? What do I do? Where do I go? What must I do to be saved? What's the next step? And I want to talk a little bit about the so what's for us now, the purposes behind um, the things that we're doing. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the emotion of change and how it feels to make a big change. And then last week, we talked how churches and, and faith communities, the, the practicalities, the how you change. But my question today for you is the so what of why do you change? Like, why are we going about this? This whole process, uh, for, I think, has been enjoyable, but we've done all these things. We did our mix and mingle. We've had dinners. We've had these Sundays together, all to explore. <laughs> all to explore this idea of bringing together these churches. And so now I want to ask what I think is a very valid and important question. Well, so what? Why? What's the point of it all? And to do so, we're going to spend a little bit of time um, in Ephesians because I want to get a good theological answer. I want to have an answer that is grounded in what God has done in the world and what God wants to do in our lives instead of a practical answer. Because we could make a very practical answer, right? So why are you guys going about this? And we could go, well, when you look at our attendance and you look at giving numbers and utility bills and blah, 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 and we can answer the question that way. That's not a terrible way to answer questions, okay? I can promise you ministers spend a lot of time thinking about those sorts of questions. But I want something a little deeper, a little more grounded in God's work in the world. So what? Why would we engage in a process like this? And we want to root it in some passages in Ephesians that really are helpful because it, it's Paul's so what for everything we do in faith. Ephesians, in a way, is, a, is the least particular of Paul's letters because it kind of talks generically about what it means to live the Christian life. But as Bruce and I talked about things this week, there were some of these passages that uh, came out that are we thought were important. Now, Bruce and I talked about this. You're getting a sermon somewhat of Bruce's thoughts then processed by Caleb. Bruce could offer probably another sermon on Ephesians that is more exactly what he was thinking, but I think that maybe, uh, hopefully we're on the same wavelength here as we talk a little bit about 
the book of Ephesians. Uh, I want to do two passages. I usually don't do as much scripture as we're going to do today. I, I like to have a little more time to go a little deeper into the scripture than we're going to have today, but that's okay. This is about kind of the big picture of what Ephesians is teaching us. Here's Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. All right. Uh, if you have questions about this passage as we go on, definitely use your little question cards that are in your pew. We can talk about them later. I don't have nearly enough time to dive into all of what Paul said there. But the big picture here is he talks about Jews and Gentiles. People who were born within an understanding of who God was and who followed the Hebrew scriptures and those who were born in a Greco-Roman context and were most likely pagans and did not believe in one God. And Jesus and what ta happens here is Paul talks about how Jesus brought those two people together. It's this amazing, fabulous uh, thing. The language he uses is so big and overarching that God unites people that he literally forms a new humanity. That is the two bonded together by Jesus and that he's made peace and that all the things that cause these two groups of people not to get along are no longer important because Jesus has brought them together so that the two have become one and they now live together in a new sort of beautiful community that expresses the more fully the beauty of the creation that God made in humanity. We sometimes ask, how are Christians uh, going to get along with one another? How do we get along across different social or ethnic or cultural or economic barriers? And Paul's response to that is, how could you not get along if you're all in Christ Jesus? You have been defined by what Jesus has done in the world. And the ministry of Jesus Christ on the cross is not just a killing of sin and death, but it is also a killing of hostility between peoples. That the conflict between you and other people is now gone and you are together. People who had no hope of joining Israel are now welcomed at the table of God because Jesus has changed the way we operate. And the reality for us then is that the way that we live in unity with others 
is an important part of experiencing the ministry of Jesus Christ. How do you experience Jesus? You get along with people who aren't like you. You work with people who aren't like you. You're part of a bigger, wider church. This is why it is so important for us to have partnerships, whether they're partnerships to plant other churches across the country within a denominational context, or whether it's uh, partnerships across the city. I pray with pastors here in the city from all kinds of different churches, and we together pray that God's will is done in this place, because the more that we engage the broader world of Jesus followers, the more and more and more we experience the death of hostility that Jesus tried to provide on the cross. And that we so often ignore. And so at the very basis level, when we talk about what's going on here and part of the reasons why we might bring come together, it's because we're experiencing God's goodness when we do that. Anytime two groups of people who are both unified by the word of God, they're experiencing what God intended for them. Um, and, and Paul ends this by talking about building this building, that when we experience that unity, when we live in that peace, that God builds us into a building, but not any building, into a temple. Temples are places where people meet God. And when we live in peace with our brothers and sisters, and when we unify, it allows other people to come into the presence of God. This is why Jesus says, this is how people will know you're my followers, if you love one another. This is why John in 1 John connects love of your neighbor to love of God. That ultimately, when we take care of one another and we work well with one another, it creates this open door so that other people can come into the temple of God and experience the presence of God. And those things all function together. So that's one snapshot. Now, this snapshot is within the theological part of Paul, uh, of Ephesians. Uh, if you read Paul's letters, Paul almost always splits his letters almost exactly in half between theological content and practical content. It's not the theological isn't practical or the practical isn't theological. It's just more specifically aimed at different things. The first half of his letters are the deep discussions of scripture and spiritual principles and the second half of the letter is, now when you go to work tomorrow, this is how you live that out. And so I want to read a passage that I think similar to this passage we just read, but it's in the practical half, where Paul then applies how this unity and the way the unity builds a temple looks in everyday life. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Down to verse 11. Christ himself gave you apostles prophets, evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people who are de deceitfully scheming. 
Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. For him, from him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. All right, again, a lot of things here. Paul begins with the things that unify us. Earlier he talked about how he has made one new humanity, and now he talks about all the things that that humanity shares. One faith, one baptism, one spirit, one father. All right, anybody who is part of God's body, God's people, are all sharing of the same spirit and the same faith. We divide ourselves up in all kinds of ways, but he says there is only one body and one community of God, and we share these things. But then he talks a little bit about the giftedness that he gives us. And he talks about the body of Christ and these different roles that people fulfill. We talked here at the feast about a month and a half ago about how the body is a great metaphor that Paul uses over and over to talk about how we work together with people who aren't like us. That hands and feet and eyes all need one one another in the body. And that when we cooperate and we work together, that's really helpful and good and holy and what God desired for us. Uh, we went through a whole sermon series in Romans, and one of them was on the passage in Romans about the body. So you can go back and crib note that if you want, because I don't have much time to talk about the body metaphor today. But what I want to get to here is the so what. And this is what I love. Paul, it's really dense. It's so Pauline. Paul is just kind of drive us crazy when he does this, right? He just takes these phrases and he heaps them on top of each other. But after he talks about the gifts we get... He says, the reason that all of this happens is so that we're properly equipped for good works, right? When we work together, when we live within that unity, when we accept that we're all one body and we all have different roles that we can work together, then what happens is we're better at service. We're better at caring for the people around us and being part of the communities we live in. And when that happens... The natural response is the growth of the church, right? We got arrows here. We're going over here to the growth of the church. I think that's numerical. I think it's spiritual. I think it's everything. When you're doing a good job of serving the people around you, more of those people want to go to your church. And as you do it as a body, you become better and better Christians. You become more knowledgeable of who God is and what God desires for your life. And so you start to grow, And that leads even more unity, even more bringing people together, and even more fullness of knowledge. And Paul says all of that leads to maturity, growing up from a child in the faith to an adult in the faith. And then he hits us with this really crazy phrase, so that we might, quote, attain the fullness of Christ. Um. My guess is you do not know what it means to attain to the whole measure of Christ. That is probably something that you read and you go, Ooh, I don't understand. Well, attain the whole. It sounds very cosmic and very scary and something that is very beyond me. How may I main, attain to the full measure of Christ? And what Paul is saying here and what he says throughout Ephesians is that there's a difference between the status that we've been given and the way that we live sometimes. He said it earlier in this this passage when he says that that we should strive to live up to the calling we have received. Uh, It's maybe a a silly metaphor, but I think of it as um, a little kid wearing his dad's clothes. 
All right. Jesus has clothed us with with holiness and goodness and purity. He's made us part of his people. But there's a dissonance between what he has made us and how we really live. To put this um, some other ways, um, we have been accepted as children of God, yet so often we ignore who our Father is. We're made holy, but then we still turn around and sin. We are Jesus' siblings, but yet we deny him often by what we do day to day. We have everything we could possibly need, and yet we still lie and cheat and steal. And this is the dissonance that the whole book of Ephesians is about. This is who you are. You've been thrown into dad's clothes. Now it's time for you to grow up and start to actually fit them. So instead of looking goofy, walking around in a tie and shirt that don't fit you, they're nice and snug and you have ripply muscles and all of these kinds of things, right? That you start to grow up and to live into what Jesus has called you. That you were made a holy child, accepted and loved. That we were given, uh, the theological term is imputed righteousness. You were treated as if you were a righteous person. Now start to live like a righteous person actually lives. And that is all about maturity. And learning how to grow in our maturity to be more what Jesus wants us to be. Paul uses the phrase enlightenment often in Ephesians. He says that he wants us to be enlightened to the treasures that we have in Jesus. As if we're a child growing up in a mansion where there's gold and rubies and all these sorts of things like hidden in drawers around the house. And every once in a while we go to pull out a knife and we go, oh, geez, there's millions of dollars in this drawer. Who knew? And that that's what the Christian life is like. That you have all these resources around you, all these blessings around you, all of these ways that you could be like Jesus. They're literally right in front of your nose, but you're so dense you don't know it's there. And Ephesians is about being enlightened to what God wants you to be and what God has already made you. Now, I think this is important for us because, again, in this passage, there's a connection between unity and maturity. Paul starts all of chapter 4 by going, we are one body, don't fight, don't fuss, as far as it's up to you, get along with other people, because when you do, you're going to see the gifts that have been given you, and those gifts are going to empower your church to serve better, which is going to grow the church, which is going to increase your knowledge, which is going to mature you, and eventually you will experience the fullness of everything God's already given you that you don't realize is around you. There's a direct through line to living in unity with other people, and experiencing the fullness of the measure of God. All right, so here's the natural question. If I'm the skeptic sitting in the pew, which I often am, what I would be asking, well, okay, so merging these two churches is the only way to make that happen, Caleb? No. God's a very powerful God, very (laughs) sovereign. He can bring you to understand the fullness of the measure of Christ, whether you're part of this church or not, and whether or not these two churches are together or separate. That's not my point. But it is my point that experiencing and living through the act of being unified and at peace with other people accelerates your spiritual growth. Experiencing the unity that God intends for us is one of the best ways to pour gasoline on that fire, so to speak. And in our conversations between Bruce and I, and then Bruce and Janet, and me and Fran, and then our leadership team, and 
the board, all these other places where we've talked about this process, we felt very convicted that the best way to help us all mature in Christ faster and more fully is to do it together. <clears throat> because there's this reality that the more that we live in unity with one another, the more that we participate in this practice of building up a building or building up the body, Paul switches his metaphors. It's a temple in chapter 2. It's a body in chapter 4. Excuse me. But in both passages, it is very clear that what's going on is that we experience God's goodness. We lean into what Jesus has done on the cross, that we find more unity. And then as that happens, we're built up, and it just makes us more effective at what we do to try to bless the world. And we're convinced that we could be more effective working together than we would be working apart. And there's a way that that sets you up and starts you on a new path. Uh, practice makes perfect. Um, it's my hope that um, this process of engaging one another and welcoming one another becomes a habit of like, oh, well, I just got done learning how to embrace 15, 20 new people into my life. Now I'm ready to embrace a family that lives down next door to me. Or now I'm ready to embrace these neighbors that we have. Or now I'm willing to embrace that person that's coming to Bible study for the first time. That the experience of living out God's unifying work in Jesus makes you hungry to do it more. And that this is a catalyst. It's not just, like if this is the same group of people by Christmas, Bruce and I are going to be real disappointed. Because we love you all. But it's not just about this room. It's about experiencing God's work in Jesus that brings unity, that causes us to then desire to bring more and more and more people in so that more and more and more walls of hostility are broken down because that is who Jesus is. And that when we live in that, we see the power of Jesus work in us. And the more that we do it, we just grow up. And we all want to grow up so that we can know the fullness of the measure of Jesus. Um, all right, I'm going to make an executive decision. I may regret this. Let's just do Q&A just with raising hands today. I know we're changing it up all the time. I'm trying different things. But um, I'm in a spot where I would love to do questions now instead of breaking and grabbing cards and all those things. So if you have prayer requests, still obviously put the prayer requests on the cards. Uh, do you guys have any questions about the passage today or the sermon or anything we're talking about? I do believe that we are being sanctified and that the longer we're in Christ and the more we mature, it causes us to live better and live more like Jesus. And again, it kind of goes into what we talked about a bit on Bible study this week. The more you hang out with your dad, the more you talk like your dad, right? Some of us don't even like that because we're like, oh, geez, I just sounded like my father. But, I mean, this is the way it works spiritually, too. The more time we spend with Christ, the more he just rubs off on us. And we sound like him and we act like him. Now, I don't want to get into a judgmental place that's like, oh, that person's 85 years old and they're still a real big jerk. They must not know Jesus. That's, that's not the, how far I want to go. But I do think that there's a legitimate question. When you know someone who's been a Christian for decades and they're still a mean, angry old cuss, what happened? You know, like, what's going on? How is it possible that you lived with a great Lord this long and you're still in the same muck that you've always been in? Um, so, I, I mean, I, I think that's a legitimate question. It's, uh, uh, particularly, 
you know, when we point that at other people, it looks a little nasty, but that's particularly one that we point inside. Caleb, why 20 years into a relationship with Jesus are you still the same guy on this issue? Like, how has he not changed you at this point? And then that's where I see the places where I'm holding on real tight to things I shouldn't hold on to. Yeah. Let me go ahead and answer that real quick. So what about, I mean, do we ever arrive? Do we ever truly maintain, you know, attain the full measure of Christ? Uh, first of all, Paul would be ecstatic if that was the problem, okay? He is writing to the Ephesian church because they're at about 2% of the fullness of the measure of Christ. And so and I think most of us would say in our spiritual lives, we have never got to a point where we go, wow, I am so much like Jesus. I don't know how I could be any more so. I mean, that's just not a problem many of us deal with, right? Um, but that being said, I think we also, and I'm going down a rabbit hole a little bit, sometimes in Protestant Christianity, particularly if we're affected by Lutheran and Calvinistic theology, we tend to be too negative. Like Paul talks in Romans that no one is righteous. No one, you know, all have fallen short of God. And that's true. But Luke also says that Elizabeth and Zechariah and some of these people in Luke 1 are righteous people. Now, does this mean that Luke disagrees with Paul? No, he doesn't mean that they're fully righteous, which is what Paul's talking about in Romans. But he means that there are people who, as they get older and as they grow, just generally become good people. They just become righteous people. They become people who more often than not do the right thing. And there is something to be desired and something to be honored about that. Like, if you know someone who on the whole, is a good, righteous person, honoring them and saying, you know, you're all, I, I just really appreciate you. You're a great model for me. And there is nothing godly about bludgeoning ourselves with guilt about how not good we are. And there are some streams of Protestant theology that have taught us that that's somehow godly and good to just talk about how crummy you are. And I just don't, I don't see that in Scripture. I see someone... I see Paul saying that you've been called to be the fullness of Jesus and go for that and strive for that. And that's not some crazy, like he's not putting it out there as like this carrot that's so far away that we can never get it. So why do we even try? He's going, no, grow up, mature, get to later. In other places he talks about eat meat, not milk. Like maturing and growing is something you can do and you can take pride in that in the appropriate way that, oh, I'm so thankful that God's worked in me this way. Does that help? Does it make sense? Yeah. So I think that we can put those together really well. So the, the question for the recording is, you know, how do we deal with these cycles of faith where we kind of get built up by a good spiritual experience and feel like we're maturing and then we take a few steps back as regular life hits? Um, so I think it is connected to unity and community. The more that you are with other people who share your faith, the more that you're engaged in your Christian community, the more that you're hearing the truth instead of hearing the lies. Because in your society, you're hearing lies all day long about who you are. And so engaging in church and being more unified and being more together and being more frequently together with fellow Christians is a major way to smooth and even some of those things out. But another big part of this is just practicing being in the presence of God. This is why ministers are always banging on about you need to have a prayer life, you need to read scripture, you need to have a devotional life, and sometimes it can feel like another checklist. But there truly is this reality that when you're in the presence of God and you're experiencing his acceptance of you and that calling, it's easier to live into the calling. Whereas if you're living in a place kind of by yourself and you're not experiencing God's presence, it's easy to doubt yourself and to, to have that fear. 
you know, Bible, the Bible talks about perfect love driving out fear. And I take that to mean when I am in the presence of God, my fear and my doubts go away because they can't exist where he's at. And so often when I'm at my lowest, it's because I have not spent time to try to enter his presence and to hear his, his word in my life. And so that's why we push devotional habits um, is so that we can always hear God's voice close.